This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Arjo. It's through Arjo's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Arjo. What would happen if we initiated these conversations by saying, we're going to focus on care. We're going to handle this with care. We're going to bring caring for each other. And we are going to center our plans and decisions from that caring place. This is Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. In order to provide better support to our aging population over the coming years, we will all need to adopt a fresh perspective and reimagine how we support seniors. One of the new rules that clearly emerged through the pandemic is the role of caregiver, a family friend, neighbor, colleague in the circle of care. Today's guest is someone who brings tremendous insight into the needs of our aging population in Ontario and what will be needed going forward as we hope to strengthen support systems for our diverse population of caregivers. Amy Koopel is the CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization. As an entrepreneur, an educator, and a caregiver herself, Amy brings a personal and professional understanding of caregiving. In today's episode, Amy shares some of her expert knowledge about what it means to be a caregiver and how we can develop a more solid foundation of support for everyone who provides care. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Amy's passion, compassion, empathy, and also optimism ring through. Welcome back, everyone, to Coming of Age. I am absolutely delighted to be able to welcome Amy Koopel to today's podcast. Uh, I have had the privilege of coming to know Amy in her role as CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization. But Amy just brings such a depth of perspective to our discussion around aging and reimagining how we're going to support our aging population. Uh, not only is Amy a CEO of a publicly funded purpose-built organization built around family and, and informal caregiving. She brings a depth of experience as an entrepreneur and an educator. And so, Amy, welcome to today's podcast. I would love to have you talk to us a bit about your background, though, as, as we talk about the, the how we're going to reimagine supporting our aging population. We've been through so much over the last uh, two and a half years. And you you came in to the Ontario Caregiver Organization as its first CEO, just as this was hitting, but you brought lots of ideas beforehand. So I would love to hear your thoughts about where caregiving is going to fit, but but also some of the thinking you bring as an entrepreneur and educator as well. You know, I've had so many conversations with people about 
where we were as an organization before we came into the pandemic, what my perspective and experience was coming in, and of course, how all of that was turned on its head in March of 2020. So I was so excited to come in and set up this new organization dedicated to those caregivers, supporting family members, friends, neighbors on an unpaid basis who were in a variety of circumstances and had a variety of needs related to their physical and mental health. And I knew how important that was because of my own caregiving experience. And like many people, my caregiving experience really never included me identifying myself as a caregiver. So I was a young caregiver for my brother who had cerebral palsy. I was very actively engaged in that process in my family. And then I was also a caregiver for my mom through her cancer and palliative care journey. And now I'm a caregiver for my dad, who's an older adult living in his 80s at home and uh, navigating some of his uh, health needs as well. And so I thought, okay, you know, I've got this experience, but I've also got this understanding that no Nobody's caregiving this experience is exactly the same as someone else's. So it's really important to be curious about the unique circumstances of everyone's caregiving experience. But what I never expected is that we were, as we were launching our first programs and services, that we would also be facing this global pandemic. And it's been, you know, an extremely tough time for caregivers. The challenges that they have faced have been extensive and devastating for many people, but it's also shone a light on caregiving and the role that caregivers play and the importance of caregiving for individuals, for our families, for our community, for our healthcare system. And so, you know, it's been a fascinating time to be a part of these really important dialogues. And as we change our stride, I suppose, around the pandemic, one of my real hopes is that we will continue this conversation about caregiving because it's so important that we see that these discussions are important in the long term and that we don't say, oh, we talked about that in the height of the pandemic and we've got that covered because we do not have this conversation covered or complete. There's a lot more to do in terms of engaging caregivers, supporting them, and working together for the best outcomes for patients, residents, clients. I love the fact that you talk about your own experience and the fact that you yourself didn't even identify as a caregiver. If we've seen something emerge, a movement, if you will, over the past two and a half years, it really is a movement towards that better understanding that each, almost each and every one of us is a caregiver. And what does that mean? We've certainly seen it in long-term care and and in the province of Ontario, Canada, uh, our government has brought in new legislation where they're enshrining the role of family caregiver in our homes. And we've, we've seen family members emerge with bigger voices and more defined roles. Amy, I, I want to dig in a bit on on something you've said, though, in terms of each and every caregiver experience is different. There's such a diversity of experience. And I know that you do an annual spotlight report, but you've also done some really interesting segmentation work. And, and for our listeners, uh, they've done work to really break out who, who are the personas, uh, what are the profiles of who our caregivers are. They're not what one would have thought they would have been. I think 
I certainly coming in as having been a family caregiver for both my mother, uh, who was not in long-term care, but for my father, who was in long-term care, who lived in, and died in, in long-term care many years ago with, with end-stage Alzheimer's. I it's So much of my interpretation was in large part female, older women supporting a spouse or an aging parent. That's not, I don't think that definition or that assumption actually holds. It, it really doesn't hold. I think it is the common narrative. And in fact, I've had conversations with researchers where they've shared their data and showed the demographic base that they drew their data from. And it's often middle-aged white women because that is the demographic that might respond to the survey or it might be the demographic that receives the survey request more specifically. But when we look at caregivers and caregiving in all contexts, certainly across the province of Ontario, caregivers come from every part of the province, every culture, every socioeconomic group, every physical and mental health type of need that an individual might have. You know, there, there is great diversity in caregiving, and that's why when we're doing our work at OCO, we are constantly reminding ourselves that there are things that we don't know. And that's why we come back to caregivers and say, okay, we're exploring this question. Tell us about your perspective. And how do we get as diverse a group in terms of experience, in terms of background, to comment on those things? Because those experiences are different. The other thing that I think we should uh, do well to remember is that caregiving in and of itself, even if it's the same relationship, me as a caregiver with my dad, my caregiving journey with him has evolved hugely over the time that I've been supporting him as a caregiver. So we can't presume that the way things were a month ago, six months ago, a year ago are going to be the same. But you you talked about personas, and, and I want to just speak to this very briefly because we found that the data that has emerged through our annual spotlight report has been very valuable, not only for us, but for our partners in government, our partners in healthcare, in not-for-profits uh, who are also supporting people with different types of conditions or diagnoses. And it really helps to understand what the practical lived reality of different caregiving circumstances might be. What we see steadily every year is that the number of caregivers who are providing more than 10 hours of care per week are increasing. The number of caregivers who are facing burnout is increasing. It was 58% of caregivers dealing with burnout in our 2021 Spotlight Report this year. That's pretty striking if more than half of caregivers are dealing with burnout. And it starts with frustration, overwhelm, fatigue, stress, and then it gets to that burnout place. And we can look at these personas with the amount of labor, unpaid labor, but physical labor, emotional labor that people are doing that leads them to that place. And that's why we feel it's really, really important to have those conversations about recognizing caregivers and supporting them so that they can do what they've committed to doing, which is being a caregiver. But if you're burnt out or you run into a physical or mental health condition as a result of your caregiving role, it's going to impair your ability to continue to, to do that caregiving work that you've committed to doing. What, what do you see, Amy, through your 
engagement and and your lens. What are some of the opportunities and things we need to be focusing on today in supporting our caregivers? One, in self-identifying as a caregiver, understanding what tools and resources they have, but also will need. And then finally, I think thinking about the role of caregiver as we reimagine what healthcare looks like. Number one is we've got to have the right people at the table, and that must include caregivers. And when I say that, I want to caution strongly against tokenism or or in any way checking a box by having caregivers at the table. I mean, meaningful engagement and meaningful inclusion where caregivers have an empowered voice in the process of working through this transformation that is inevitable, but can be optimally designed with the right people at the table. And I guess that leads to a philosophical number two, which is let's actually work together on the vision and the solutions and ensuring that patient voice, caregiver voice, provider voice, system voice, that these voices come together in concert in those discussions. And, and, you know, you and I have both been a part of conversations recently as well, where I continue to hear about polarization, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, there's an us and them, whether it's paid and unpaid, whether it's provider and patient, and where is the caregiver in that dialogue? Sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. But we do have some very common areas of concern and some very common areas of priority. So we can take our gloves off, so to speak, and say, hey, let's attack the problem. Let's look at this from a solution-based lens and let's work this together, recognizing that everybody has a powerful voice and input. I think that's really important. Taking on the role of caregiver can be a major challenge in anyone's life, whether you're a family member or chosen family member. And in so many cases, caregivers don't self-identify. They think, I'm a wife, a husband, a daughter, a partner, a friend. As Amy mentioned, more than half of caregivers are facing burnout today. So additional support is greatly needed now more than ever. Amy also shared some excellent points about the diverse nature of the role. People of all socioeconomic backgrounds, cultures, gender, and ages can assume this important role for a senior in their life. So it's important that we remember there is no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to supporting caregivers. The best way we can determine the kind of support each caregiver needs is simple. Just ask. Amy reminds us that seeking input from a diverse group of caregivers is an essential step in the process because we don't know what we don't know and we can't help if we don't fully understand the issues at hand. In the province of Ontario, we are now working on an estimation of 4 million caregivers in the province. And when we were formed as an organization, that number was 3.3 million. So we are seeing an escalation of that number broadly. 
people providing care on an unpaid basis on a weekly basis. So it's important to note when you talk about aging population, when you talk about concerns around shortages of workers, all of those kinds of things, that it is caregivers who end up picking up the slack. And so we must recognize that caregivers make a financial contribution to the system, right? We have actually seen through research that comes out of University of Alberta that that number is now 26 billion. That's a huge number in terms of economic contribution into the healthcare system broadly. So to recognize that at that sort of overall macro or system level and say caregivers are important, they're making a contribution. Let's make sure we factor them into that broader transformation and that broader system change. But we need to take that down to the micro as well, because so many of the calls and, and outreach that we receive from caregivers is based on their individual lived experience. And so this is what I talk about as changing the hearts and minds of individuals, because it always comes down to the interaction with the person who's on the other end of the phone, the person who responds to the email, the person who implements the policy. And so as we can help to facilitate those meaningful conversations on an interpersonal basis with the various people who are involved in care, then we can recognize that caregivers should be partners in care, recognized as partners in care, and engaged through the process in that spirit of partnership so that we can work through these things together. And, and therein lies the challenge for leaders and care partners, whether you're an unpaid partner or a paid care partner. I think that's part of the challenge of coming out of the pandemic. Certainly, in, as we think about long-term care, um, we've lost trust in many cases. Uh, and we have not served our seniors well. We have not put the pieces in place to validate them and, and the value of, of our seniors' population. Uh, our, our seniors built our communities, built their families, and yet we've moved to these cookie-cutter approaches where long-term care is a box that is funded. Everybody's funded exactly the same. Where they've legislated who can do what in your long-term care home in terms of models of care. It hasn't been built out within the context of that full healthcare continuum around where home and community care, mental health care and system supports, emergency services and hospital care fits. We've started to build out those partnerships over the last two years, and that's a, a positive development. It's sad that it took a, a global pandemic that preyed on older people to, to do that, but we can't lose that uh, but it's also built out uh, the the need for our family members to recognize and validate uh, regular caregivers. And, and they're not necessarily all family members, though. No, they're not. And, and you know, you've raised so many important points here, and I'll, I'll try and uh, connect the dots a little bit because I I really, really strongly agree with you on the trust piece. And this is something that I've been talking about with people that I think we cannot underestimate the damage that's been done in those interpersonal relationships and in those collective relationships that, that we ha actually have to invest in trust building right now as a fundamental foundational priority that we will actually generate better outcomes 
if we do that, right? And so, so I, I really wanted to start with that because I think it's so critically important. And it actually ties in with what you were just saying about not everybody is a family member. One of the things that we've been navigating with people through the last couple of years is some of the rules and restrictions based on different types of relationships, different numbers of people who can access uh, the individual that that they care for if they are in hospital or long-term care, qualifying their relationships. And and there are some real challenges with that uh, for people who have caregivers who might fall into chosen family, friend, neighbor. You know, one of the amazing things through this pandemic is seeing people step up in their communities to take care of people who might be very isolated or choosing to be isolated in order to mitigate their risk uh, in terms of infection. There have been some amazing stories of people stepping up and providing support. And we need those kinds of stories because we need to be reminded that human beings fundamentally want and need to take care of each other. It's one of the things we do really, really well. I always say family members, friends, and neighbors, and if there's the opportunity to clarify, one of those clarifications is chosen family, which is particularly important in the LGBTQ plus community and for other individuals who may not have family who can or does step up to be a caregiver in their situation. So I think that that's that's vitally important. And it comes back to partnership. We partner with the people who step up And we don't necessarily know who that will be. I want to just tie in with one other thing that you talked about uh, around trust and and the experience through the pandemic. And, And I think this might help us to get a little bit to we. One of the things I've been very impressed with in some of the conversations that I've participated in with uh, system partners of various kinds is people who are willing to voice their moral distress. Now, we certainly have heard some very important and vocal uh, messages from caregivers about their challenges. And we, and we need our public policy uh, leaders to really understand the role. It, it moves, you know, one of the, the points you just made about who our caregivers are and they're working multiple jobs. We've been so anchored in looking and and the structures of government and government decision making and government funding is anchored in architecture. You've got the private sector over here, you have business here, you have your your day job, then you have different ministries and the Ministry of Long-Term Care, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Seniors, the Ministry of Post-Secondary. Then we have hospitals, long-term care, home and community care, mental health care. And we're all, the architecture is actually not built around the human experience. And it's so fragmented. That's the opportunity of disruption. As we think about the evolution of caregivers, how each and every one of us, our role will change, either as we transition to needing to be cared for ourselves or in uh, stepping up to care for friends and family. And I, I love chosen family. My mother and father always talked about friends being the family we choose for ourselves. And so oftentimes those are the people we turn to for for day-to-day support and, and ongoing support and as, as we age. As we think about this disruption and uh, 
what's next? And as we, you know, we've talked about, we're not going to build enough long-term care. We've got pressures on our hospital architecture. People want to age in place. And we have this vast resource that can, will only continue to grow, which is the world of, of our, our more informal caregivers, our chosen family and friends. If you had a magic wand, what would your top three wishes be if you could uh, wave that magic wand? Or even if there's only one big one, what's the game changer? And as we celebrate that incrementalism and think of the lessons you've learned and, and being able to experience through real implementation, not just policy in a vacuum, but policy coming to life yeah, around real people. What are those uh, what are those wishes? All of the examples that you just gave about the different forms of architecture have the word care in them. We talk about health care. We talk about caregiving. And yet, I think in a way, we use that term very flippantly and we haven't anchored ourselves in what the meaning or philosophy of care is. And so I'm asking myself, what disruption might emerge from really being guided by a principle of care, by handling these things with care, like you would with a newborn baby, like you would with a precious object. If, if we thought about it like that, we might actually start to break down some of the territoriality. We might start to break down some of the polarization. And we might start to think about this in a much more human and humane way. Because the second we start to really, really think about this as people who are doing their jobs, who are receiving the care, who are providing the unpaid care, whatever the case may be, then, then A, we find that common ground, but B, we realize that we're all doing these kinds of things from that driver of care. And so, no, it's not a methodology and it's not, you know, something concrete, but I actually think it might be part of what's missing here. And what would happen if we initiated these conversations by saying, we're going to focus on care. We're going to handle this with care. We're going to bring caring for each other. And we are going to center our plans and decisions from that caring place. I think this is the moment, Amy. I, I... I, I am so grateful to you for your leadership and and to our listeners. I did have the privilege of working with Amy very early on as she was setting up the caregiver organization and getting a, the board set up. And it, it's been such a, a gift to me to see it, see Amy and her team and the organization thrive exponentially. In in the meetings where where you and I have sat, there's no sense of urgency. And yet we don't know what the need is um, and we don't have the time to go through the normal process. And so I think it's incumbent on each and every one of us to come together to foster that sense of urgency and action and uh, find those areas where we do agree. And if we take each step that we agree upon instead of focusing on the areas where we disagree, imagine where that path could lead us. Many people would say, we actually have some clarity on a great deal of the needs, right? And I really value the importance of 
engagement and process. So I don't want my comments to, to indicate otherwise. But we actually know a lot, right? We actually have good numbers on a lot of things, good insights and qualitative data as well. And so, you know, at some point we kind of have to say, and I think you and I are saying the same thing, let's stop circling our tails. We, we really have to just take some steps. And even if we don't know every single answer, even if we don't know every single step, let's get out of, of the gate here. And this is something I've been talking about with my team on some more sensitive or high pressure issues where I see with my team that they're nervous to get started because they don't want to make a mistake. And I don't want to make a mistake in this instance here either. These are people's lives. It really, really matters. But what we've agreed to as our metaphor as a team is that this is a road trip. And we are not on the road trip if we are sitting in the driveway. So we can change the route. We can stop for snacks. We can check the map. But we have to be on the road. And I think that that kind of approach works here as well. We have to be prepared to recalibrate. We have to be prepared to say we tried something and it didn't work. But we have to take what we know, start to gain more, and and then adjust as we go. Because otherwise, we will still just be talking. So we we need to get out of the driveway and on the road. I I often use uh, the Lord of the Rings as a metaphor. And uh, here you had this lowly hobbit who was given this this mission of uh, destroying the ring, but it it, it was a rocky path. And sometimes they got blocked and stopped and had to back up and they faced vicious creatures and and other threats, but they tapped into the the diversity of the experience and expertise and and history and experience of others. And it took the the dwarves and the elves <laughs> and others to to come together and be willing to ask for help and to reach out and and rely on one another. And again, uh, perhaps to end end on a note to trust and trust us to try. Uh, and try and err uh, and try again. And ultimately, we will get there and we will be stronger together. Uh, and it will be about we working together rather than us and them. And therein lies the opportunity, therein lies the hope. Uh, and uh, and therein lies my sense of optimism because it's people like you, Amy, and your team that you're forging in the movement you're creating and leading uh, that uh, really does give me hope. Well, it's been a pleasure. I would love to do this all day long. I think it's really important that we have these conversations. And so I'm delighted to have had this one with you and looking forward to what other people might say. I think if we use these as stimulants for the broader dialogue, then it, I'm really curious what people might say is happening in other parts of Ontario, other parts of Canada and the world, and really, really look forward to continuing this conversation with you, Donna. Thank you. My conversation with Amy highlighted several important considerations for the seniors' care space. First, Caregivers are not a monolithic group. Anyone of any background, age, gender, and culture can assume the role of a caregiver. And it's important that we remember this when we're thinking about how best to support a caregiver. Each individual may need something very different. Second, Amy noted that the most common thing she hears from caregivers 
is that they are a whole person and their loved one is a whole person, but they feel segmented and fragmented in so many different ways in their healthcare services for their physical and mental health. How can we do a better job in collaborating across the system? And finally, empathy needs to be an essential piece of the caregiving puzzle. As we work toward a more integrated, collaborative system, we should be all asking ourselves what it would be like to be in the shoes of a caregiver. Bringing an element of humanity back into the equation will help us all connect with innovative solutions for the future. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Arjo. Arjo believes that empowering movement within healthcare environments is essential to quality care. With products and solutions that are designed to promote a safe and dignified experience through patient handling, medical beds, personal hygiene, disinfection, and the prevention of pressure injuries and venous thromboembolism, Arjo is committed to driving healthier outcomes for people facing mobility challenges. Learn more about Arjo Solutions at arjo.ca. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate our show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.